Yay! Welcome everyone to another episode of my weird little podcast. Yay! Yay! Uh, tonight I am not talking other than <laughs> right now doing the introduction. We have Roxanna and Teresa. And I'm going to be completely honest. I have no idea what you're talking about, even though I picked out the names and I obviously did some research on this at some point to pick out these stories. But then when I went and read them the other day, when I was, you know, going over the schedule again with you guys, I was like, what is, especially your, like your names. Yes, I know. I have no idea who I'm assuming they're murderers. They are, yes. Because I remember Roxana's Bell Bell Gunnis. Mm-hmm. I know is a I know she killed people, but I can't really remember what or why. <laughs> um so yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna say the one with murderers with a question mark. Is yeah. gonna be the title for this one. The one with lady murderers? Lady killers. Yeah. Lady killers? Yeah. Okay, we'll do that. Lady killers. Yeah. Definitely yeah. dames. Yeah. With yeah. Uh but <laughs> a question mark at the at the end. Oh. Okay, good. Awesome. It's been said. So <sighs> yeah. Um, so yeah, don't forget it's uh, Oh yeah, it's National Paranormal Day today. Is there really? Second. Um, So May third. It's also Lumpy Rug Day. Okay. What? (laughs) Lumpy Rug Day, and what else is today? Uh, Chocolate Cake Day. Um, it's a good thing our podcast today has to do with. None of that. However, <laughs> zero of that. I wish I would have known, or I would have picked a paranormal uh, podcast or something about. Oh yeah, um, lumpy rugs <laughs> or, or chocolate chocolate custard day, garden meditation day, Ooh. Um, textile day. It's also, are- it's also teacher appreciation day, so appreciate your teachers. Wait, these are all today. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very busy day. What? Yeah. Yesterday was life insurance day. Ooh. Well, that kind of goes into my story, I guess. <laughs> Tomorrow is bird day. Oh, birds. It's bird an everyday day. bird day. It's, it's also birds. May the 4th be with you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. 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 It's mine and Josh's anniversary, too. Aww. Aww gross yeah (laughs) that's cute what are your plans oh well we already actually did something this weekend we did our big big thing I think Mm. we might be going out to dinner tomorrow night somewhere we haven't determined yet but this past weekend we went to Lake Tahoe yeah it was really fun so we did no like skiing or any shit like that we're not really into that but we did everything luxurious, like going to some fine dining restaurants and and then playing very classy game of mini golf. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Mini golf's I, the best. I beat him too by one point. So <laughs> very nice. Well done. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So it was fun. So oh, and there was um Josh got us a nice room at this one hotel that had um they have spa suites. So we had a humongous hot tub in the middle of our room. (laughs) (laughs) If that doesn't scream um, couples, I don't know what else does. So yeah, true. (laughs) That was fun though. It was cool. It was like kind of cold there a little bit because there was still um, snow on the ground in some places. So wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, It was really different. And it's only like six hours away, you know, from LA area. So yeah. Yeah six hours north roughly so I had never been there and neither had Josh so it was a lot of fun oh I love it it's so beautiful oh yeah isn't it yeah gorgeous I was really bowled away by how beautiful it was just the contrast of the snowy mountains and the lake and 
Yeah, and how clear the water is too. Oh yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, good times good. this weekend. And, nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> so ten years—that's a long ass time. <laughs> right. Tell me about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> so yeah it was a good time though so anyways back to our regular scheduled program <laughs> all right cool um so who wants to go first uh okay. what year does yours take place in mine is 1924 oh mine is late 1800s early 1900s oh so you're earlier do you want to go chronological or I, I do not care? What do you think, Tia? Um, I have to pick, huh? Because I'm in charge. That's true. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, huh. Um, I don't know. You want to flip a coin? Let's <laughs> flip a coin. Do that. Okay. Uh, who's got a coin? <laughs> Oh, uh, actually, let's roll, I, let's roll a d20. And whoever gets <laughs> it's oh, uh, what I do like odds and evens. I'm sure you oh. have a d20 around, right? Oh, we do have one right here. Okay, yeah, right here. so how about do you want the odds or evens? Oh, okay, I'll do um, I'll do odds. Okay, well, I'll okay. be even, obviously. So, there we go. Okay, <laughs> and roll, roll five. So it's me then. Is it bad? I had to think for five seconds if I was in <laughs> our odd number. Like, um, uh... <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead, Teresa. You can go first. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. Let's see. Let's see. So, yes, I am talking about two murderesses and um, the unusual names will not sound so unusual in a moment when I explain who these ladies actually are. But tonight I'm talking about um, Beulah Anon and Belva Gartner. Now those may sound like very strange or unusual names and they kind of are honestly, but um, <laughs> it was the 1920s. So everyone had, you know, an, an older, sounding name I guess I want to say Beulah well, Elva my parents when I was growing up had a Buick like a white or a cream colored Buick that uh -huh. they nicknamed Beulah oh, so okay. I kind of grew up with that name but with a car so oh okay yeah no I was be, yeah I was not familiar with it at all but oh <laughs> so, yeah it's a weird name right sounded a little different but yeah no I mean now that I know who these ladies are I'm about to to tell you it will make perfect sense to you, I think. Uh, so these two ladies, these two murderesses are the, were the real life inspiration for Roxy Hart and Velma Kelly in oh. the play Yes, so exactly. And then when I realized that I was like, oh yes, okay. Oh, this now, is why I gave you the assignment because of Chicago. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. I really okay. love that show. And yeah, it also makes sense, Chicago, <laughs> for me, because I am from Chicago. For those of you who don't know, I probably mention it every single episode, I feel, in some way. But yeah, a little too much pride sometimes. But <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> um, these ladies were the inspiration behind those characters and um Beulah Anon and by the way I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly I'm not sure I think Beulah I am since Roxana also said Beulah but yeah uh, Anon I'm not sure if that's the right way to say it hopefully it is but I'm just going to be referring to them by their first names mostly uh, but Beulah Anon was the inspiration behind Roxy Hart specifically and Belva Gartner was the inspiration behind Velma Kelly. Now, the lady who put all of that together in the play Chicago was a woman named Maureen Dallas Watkins. And she was once a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And they put her on 
the beat, I guess, with the murderous, mur what do they call it? Murderous Row um, at the Cook County Jail in Chicago. And they put her on that beat because it was thought that for men, this is so, so sexist, for men, mm. it would be too boring uh, of a subject to cover. I mean, it's murder, but <laughs> you know. it's, it's lady murder. Yeah. So that's far too boring for men to cover. So they put Maureen Watkins on that beat. So what she would do with all of this was take these um, interviews from Beulah, Belva, and the other ladies that were uh, waiting to be executed. She would take their stories and turn them eventually into the play Chicago. So, and it wouldn't take too long actually. Um, this 1924 was when the other story started and the play Chicago would be, um, sorry, I have it written here somewhere. I'll get to it, but I think it's like 1927 or something like that. So it's not too much further off. But um, she, there was also another character, uh, Sabella Nidi or Nidi was her name. And she was actually an Italian immigrant. She, um, she was the inspiration behind the character Hunyak. And if you know, you're not familiar with Chicago, uh, that was in the Cell Block Tango song when the lady, all the, mu the music stops and then they have the one lady say not guilty in you know, foreign accent, that was her character. And she was really um, treated horribly by the press. They compared her to a farm animal in oh most of the news coverage because she spoke and read almost no English. So uh, I wrote not guilty, like I said, because I was telling you, I remembered that from uh, the play. But I just thought I'd you know, mention her because <clears throat> I thought that was pretty interesting too, that these three ladies were, um, you know, three really fleshed out characters in the show. So <clears throat> I just thought that was really interesting. But now on to um, the real story behind these ladies. So if you are familiar with Chicago, then you know um, Roxy and Velma both killed uh, their lovers. Well, for Velma, it's a little different. Um, but the main point of it is that they both killed people and they were both sent to jail around the same time. And that's exactly how it kind of happened for these ladies in real life as well. So starting with Belva, who was the inspiration for Velma Kelly, she was known as the most fashionable murderess, if you will. And these are titles that came to be because of Maureen Watkins reporting on them in the Chicago Tribune. That's when she really started to use a bit of humor to kind of tell the tales of what was going on with these ladies and using their, their testimony in, in, that, in that kind of way. But she was known as the most fashionable and her, basic, her crime was that she was accused of shooting her lover, Walter Law, in her car after a night of drinking. And that would be on March 11th, 1924. So a little background on her. She was born Belva Eleonora Bussinger. And she was born on September 14th, 1884 in Litchfield, Illinois, which um, I've never been there, but I think it's just south of Chicago, not that far. She died on May 14th, 1965. She was 80 years old and she died in Pasadena, California. So I'll get into that uh, in a little bit. But she was a cabaret singer and she went by the uh, stage name of Belle Brown. She was married and divorced twice. 
and her final husband, William Gartner, he claimed that Belva was very abusive and she was also an alcoholic. So they had an extremely turbulent relationship. Um, she wound up uh, getting married to him and then divorcing him and then committing the crime. And then after the crime, she got married to him again. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure why he went back to her, um, but he did. Um, for, fortunately for him, he, he didn't lose his life or anything like that. But uh, Walter Law was not so, um, he was not so fortunate. So she, Walter Law was her lover. Um, and it said that she shot and killed him in the car. Um, he was married and he also had a child. But when he was found, he was found sprawled in the front seat of Belva's car with a bottle of gin and the gun lying beside him. So obviously right from the get-go, she's trying to make it look like he did it himself maybe, or somebody else came and did it, anyone except for her. But Belva was found later at her apartment and there were blood-soaked clothes on the floor not even concealed. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, she says that she was too drunk to remember what happened. When they interviewed her, she just very flatly said, I don't know. I was drunk. Um, she was arrested on March 12th. And Belva said that she carried a gun for fear of robbers, even though that her and um, Walter were out on the town going to clubs and bars. She still felt that she needed to carry a gun. Belva was said to be a very possessive lover by uh, some people who knew her. She threatened Walter with a knife when he tried to leave her. Ooh. And Belva told Maureen Watkins in an interview for the Tribune, she said, quote, no woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it because there are always plenty more. Walter was just a kid, 29, and I'm 38. Why should I have wor worried whether he loved me or whether he left me? Gin and guns, either one is bad enough, but together, they get you in a dickens of a mess, don't they? I just thought that was <laughs> quite the quote. Right. From Alva. Uh, she obviously um, is pretty intelligent and definitely sounds guilty from everything that I've read. But yeah. she is about to get off completely scot-free. Ooh. Now, her lawyer that defended her was William Scott Stewart, and he was known for being a big lawyer in the day, uh, very smooth talking. And actually, I will get to who uh, Beulah's lawyer was when I tell you about her, but both William Scott Stewart and Beulah's attorney, um, let me look up his name really quickly, W.W. O'Brien, both of those lawyers, they would turn into the Billy Flynn character in Chicago. So they'd kind of be a combination of those two men. Well, Belva's defense for her case was that Walter might have killed himself with the gun. That was really her only defense. And as I said, she was about to get off and she was acquitted in June of 1924. William, her, her husband that she had all the problems with, William Gartner, he actually died in 1948. And that's when Belva went to live with her sister in Pasadena in California. Ah. And so that's where her, she spent the rest of her days. And interestingly enough, um, 
not unlike Beulah, which I'm about to tell you, but um, Belva actually lived to be 80 years old, like I said. So, and she just died of natural causes. Uh, so <laughs> she committed this heinous crime, just got away with it and carried on with her life. Uh, and nothing even happened to her health-wise or anything like that. So <laughs> it's just kind of astounding. Um, but it would not be the same for Beulah Anon. Oh, before I get to Beulah, though, I'm sorry, I'm seeing one of my notes that um, this is just so ironic to me. Uh, it's very, very meta. Uh, Belva actually attended the 1927 opening of Chicago the Play in oh, Chicago, wow. Illinois. So it's like you're seeing, you know, most of your whole life and this horrible crime played out. I just can't imagine what that would be like going to attend a play that you're one of the main stars in it. Yeah. And of course, it wasn't the the Bob Fosse Chicago that we know the most. It was much different, you know, but still it's like all these details of your life. Right for everyone to see and judge and ugh, just sounds terrible but she was there she was like I'm not gonna miss this so <laughs> <laughs> but now on to Beulah Anon she was known as the prettiest murderess Ooh. and she was the inspiration behind Roxy Hart in Chicago so if you know anything about Roxy's story in Chicago. She winds up murdering her lover and then trying to, you know, once again, escape blame any way that she possibly can, making up story upon story. And that's actually exactly what Yula Anon also did. And she actually committed the murder in her just like in they show in the um, Chicago in the in the play or the film, she did murder her lover in her and her husband's bedroom. They, her, uh, and I should tell you who the lover is. His name um, was Harry. They they were drinking and they got into an argument. The gun was on the bed not sure how or why the gun was out, but that was the story. And then the thought was that Beulah was going to say, we both reached for the gun. Mm -hmm. And of course that comes straight out of the musical, you know, that song. Yeah. So they said that they both reached for the gun, but Beulah got it first and she shot Harry while he was putting on his coat and hat getting ready to leave and then after that she played a foxtrot record called hula Lou on repeat for about four hours as she sat drinking cocktails and watching harry die <gasps> yes mm. completely shocking but allegedly true um, so that's cold-blooded <laughs> you know that, that is, is yeah that is cold blooded. Um, and then you're gonna at, go out, Pat. <laughs> oh Jesus. I'm yeah. gonna go out by listening to some music and yeah. drinking and just having a party, I guess. Not exactly one. sure what record, but I've got some time to do <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. Watch out, Patrick. <laughs> Be nice. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um so after that horrendous four hours that poor Harry was dying on the floor. Oh then God. she called her husband, Al, and told him she killed a man who, quote, tried to make love to her. Mm. So she's trying to claim, of course, that he raped her when, no, they had been having a full-on affair for quite some time, and they just got into some kind of really horrible argument. Um, so much like I said, in Chicago, the play, Roxy's story changes several times and Beulah's story also changed in real life several times. 
first, mm. she confessed to the murder. Next, she claimed self-defense against rape. Like I just said, she told her husband. Uh, next, she said that she was angry that Harry was leaving her and that's why she shot him in a fit of rage and that the prosecutors believe that this was probably the most likely scenario and they believe this to be true. However, the final story at her trial was that she told Harry that she was pregnant mm -hmm. and they struggled after that physically, they got in a fight and then both of them reached for the gun and then what happened was that she shot him so that was her final story and she definitely um she got a lot a lot of attention for the pregnancy thing and you know they demonstrate that in the play as well you know that she's basically just doing that to be sympathetic to the jury and she put on a whole act, a whole show. That was her whole thing. Yeah. And yeah. of course, since she was known as the prettiest murderess, that was gonna work out in her favor, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the most horrible part of the whole thing, I think, I mean, not more horrible than the murder, but certainly up there, was the treatment of her very faithful and loyal husband, Al Anon. John C. Riley is so good in the movie. Exactly. Yes. So sad. And that's like uh that's so like not a character he normally plays. Right. Yeah. You know. The role of Amos, yeah. Mr. Yeah. Cellophane. Yeah. Such oh, a great a song. song. Yeah. Yes. And basically, I mean, that's you know, it says it all right there. That's exactly who he was, that's who his character was. And unfortunately, it sounds like in real life as well, because he stood by Beulah slash Roxy <laughs> the entire time. Um, he essentially spent all of his money to get her the very best representation, the best lawyers. And uh, like I said, the, the lawyer that represented her was W.W. O'Brien. So he was he was well known. Um, and then when Beulah was acquitted, and she was acquitted on May 25th, 1924, well, it was at that point she decided to say this about her very loyal husband that's done everything for her. She said, quote, I have left my husband. He is too slow. Oh, for everything he did for her, and she was having this affair, and that's that's the the repayment that Al Anon, and that sounds weird when I'm saying it now. Not Al Anon, like the support. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Albert. I should say his name. Albert there we go. Anan, okay. Anon. Like I said, I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing it right, but my apologies. But he stood by her the whole time, and that's the payment that he got. And yeah. in 1926, Beulah claimed that Al had deserted her, and she divorced him finally at that point. Mm. Mm. Then in 1927, Beulah married a man named Edward Harlib. He was a boxer. Three months later, she claimed that he was cruel to her and she filed for a divorce and Harlib actually had to pay her $5,000, which would be the equivalent of about $78,000. Damn. So yeah, back then that was quite, quite the money that she got, but you know, um, sorry, Beulah, but she sounds like not the greatest, uh, of course, along with Belva here. <laughs> so this is really re making me rethink all the glamour and glitz of the play in Chicago, because, you know, of course, I love the ending when they, they have Roxy and Velma together doing their duet. I just think that's one of the best songs ever in musical yeah. history ever. And I love, I'll probably watch it later tonight. <laughs> like, it's so good. I already watched it 
when I was doing this. But anyway, um, getting back to it in real life, these really real details. No, they just make it even more real. Like these were real people. So uh, Beulah died of tuberculosis at age 28. Oh, oh yeah. Remember I said Belva was age 80 and she died of natural causes. Beulah actually died of tuberculosis at 28 at Chicago Fresh Air Sanatorium in 1928 and that was only just four years after her acquittal so she did not get to live very long after that um maybe payment i'm not sure i'm not saying but she was buried in kentucky so back in her in her hometown that's actually where she was from uh which i didn't mention she was from owensboro kentucky and just like belva she was also married and divorced twice. So, so many similarities in their stories um, down to the finest details. So yeah. that's, that's pretty ironic as well. So it makes perfect sense why they would be the two big stars in Chicago. Obviously they had the most compelling, most lurid details in their stories. Um, and as for Maureen Watkins, if anyone's wondering, the author, mm -hmm. what happened to her, it's quite interesting. She ended up in Florida and she became a born again Christian. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yes, very interesting. She was very staunch about not selling the rights to Chicago to anyone while she was alive. And she really, uh, she was approached many times and especially by none other than Bob Fosse, who of course would take this and turn it into a complete work of art. Uh, <laughs> but he, she wouldn't sell the rights to him. Um, and after she died, uh, they actually did, her estate would sell the rights, which is why uh -huh. you know, we have the piece of art that we have today. But mm -hmm. I thought it, this was really interesting um, this was a quote from a New York Times article from 1996, and she, or I'm sorry, they said that the reason possibly behind why she didn't want to sell the rights might be this. It said, quote, those pursuing the rights became convinced that her reluctance sprang from guilt over her role in the acquittals and her transformation of the murders into comedy oh so she really just you know was letting this deeply affect her and that's why she didn't want to sell the rights to the story so i mean i can definitely understand that point of view but then at the same time i am glad that <laughs> they did get the rights because i don't know i mean chicago is such a great place musical and seeing it on the stage and seeing it the movie version was very good i thought so you know we wouldn't have all of that so right it's yeah, it's so. you know in the end i think it worked out for for everyone but yeah i don't know it's definitely interesting and i didn't know that that was her it probably seems very likely that that was her point of view i mean if she was a born again christian Mm -hmm. she was gonna feel really bad about that so i don't know it's interesting to think about that's all <laughs> i'm very curious what the original play is like like i wonder if yeah. i can find a copy of that somewhere online oh yeah i think you can i mean i haven't looked into it myself yeah. but i'm pretty sure that that you could find it if you're looking yeah. for it but I'll, yeah, I'm going to look for it. Definitely. Right. <laughs> but yeah, that is the real life uh, tale behind Roxy and Velma. And um, I got most of the information from, of course, Wikipedia, but also the New York Times. That article from 1996 was very helpful in figuring all of this out. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's really cool because that all that time 
that was happening in Chicago, it certainly seems that um, if you were a woman and you were committing murder in 1924, you were going to get a lot of attention. So, I mean, negative attention, of course, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of you know they could make a reality show out of it now nowadays. So, mm. very interesting. Anyway. That is the tale of Beulah Anon and Belva Gartner. Woo! Woo! Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Now's a good time for a break. Ta da! Hi, I'm Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, and Jules and I want to tell you a little bit about a case that means a great deal to us the death of nine-month-old baby Jacob Landine on April the 10th, 1987, in Socorro, New Mexico. The day prior to his death, on April 9th, baby Jacob was being watched by his mother Brenda's new boyfriend, John, not his real name, in his mobile home on 1453 Fatima Drive. While John was babysitting Jacob, Jacob would incur what would be his second head injury in a period of weeks. The prior head injury was a subdural hematoma, or brain bleed, and it was serious enough that it needed to be lanced to take pressure off baby Jacob's brain while being monitored by doctors over the course of several days. The circumstances surrounding how Jacob was injured and subsequently died are murky at best, with the suspect giving multiple versions of the events of the day, ranging from Jacob choking and accidentally hitting his head while trying to dislodge a cookie, to Jacob falling and John returning to see the injured infant. The suspect also reportedly confessed to two officers that he was indeed responsible, but there is no paper or audio record of this confession in the police file. The reasons given by the DA for not pursuing the case are confusing as well, with one of the reasons being that they were worried that John would file charges against the state. It was the opinion of the doctors that baby Jacob was struck in the head and this was no accident. In the years to follow, John goes on to sexually abuse young Eric well as physically abusing his mother Brenda and emotionally abusing and isolating them both, making the world very small. During the autopsy, layers of abuse seem to be present. A healing rib fracture from around the time of the first head injury is also discovered. It's impossible to say exactly when the injury took place, but what is clear is that someone was abusing young Jacob, and that person was most likely John. Eric Landine, Jacob's brother, has been fighting to get justice for him. However, he faces some obstacles such as the statute of limitations of six years on second-degree murder that State Representative Bill Ream has petitioned to have overturned. Join Robin and I, as well as criminologist Dr. Ashley Wellman, an investigative expert, a legal expert, a forensic psychiatrist, as well as Jacob's brother Eric, as we explore all angles of this case and try to bring awareness, understanding, and hopefully, ultimately, justice for Jacob. The series starts on March the 1st. Tune in on your favorite podcast app. And we're back. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> All right, Roxy, what do you got? I Roxy Heart. Sorry, we had to do it. <laughs> no, you did. It that makes sense. Uh, because it, you know, got to tie in. Well, my story does tie in with murderous. S, well, just one murder S. Uh, and Chicago. Yay! Yay. <laughs> what is it about Chicago and ladies that kill? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm going to talk about uh, Belle Gunnis, uh, nickname Hell's Bell. Oh. Right, exactly. And there's a little bit of some weird things going on with her death. So that's where I'll go ahead and start. Uh, so on April 28th of 1908, there was a fire at the farm where Belle had been living and her and her three children at the time. And it's not quite known if they were her real children or foster children, but she was taking care of them. They all perished in this fire. Yeah, sad, wow. right? Mm, yeah. The weird thing, though, <laughs> is that Belle's head was missing. I don't know how that happens in a fire. I mean, yeah. So they found the decapitated body of what they think, who they thought Belle was, 
because uh, there's also some other weird things about the body missing a head. And then, of course, they were able to identify the three children that had been living on the farm. And some people think that the body was not actually Bell's body. The coroner did an examination and it didn't quite measure up. Bell was about six feet tall, very burly, very manly looking woman. And the body that they found was not tall enough. It would have been five feet or five feet, five inches too short. And it was much lighter than Bell's body had been. Uh, they did find a jawbone that had teeth in it that one of the local dentists said, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. That, that was the work that I did on Bell not too long ago, just recently. So of course it must be her. The cause of death though, was not from the inhalation of smoke or you know what most people die of when they're in a fire. It was the contractions of the heart, basically that this person had been poisoned mm. and then their head cut off and then thrown into this fire. <laughs> so why, why would Belle want to fake her own death and kill mm. her children? Mm, so this is the mystery. Let's go into it. Mm. So Belle- Why not? not? <laughs> why not? does she have to hide? Oh, we'll find out. So Belle was born in, oh crap, I have this written down. I should know this. I, I, it's Norway, but I'm like, is it Norway or one of those of Sweden? Because, you know, they're the same country, right? Are they not? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. So she was born November 11th, 1859 in Norway. She was the youngest of eight children. And her parents apparently were magicians. And so, you know, she'd hang out with them and they'd travel around and do shows. But she kind of wanted a better life for herself. And in her mind, that was going to the United States. So she started to raise money to move to uh, New York City because that's pretty much where everybody went through. You know, you went through Ellis Island. She had an older sister that was living in Chicago. So she finally raised enough money and moved to first New York and then later to Chicago and started living with her sister. And she worked as a, you know, housekeeper, domestic servant, you know, somebody going around cleaning houses. But then, and this is going to play later in the story, she got a job in a butcher shop. And remember, she's like six feet tall. She's a big, big lady. <laughs> so she can carry around those slabs of meat. And so she learned how to cut up animal carcasses. Oh, boy. Yeah, live, yeah. This yeah, kind of reminds me of that lady who like boiled her husband's body parts. I don't know oh. if you remember that. That yes. one that we did. Didn't Jameson talk with about Jameson that? Jameson back yeah, in the day. Yeah, that was disgusting. And she worked at a slaughterhouse yeah. too. I can't oh, remember. Oh, so freaking gross, man. Yeah, yeah. you're right. <laughs> Sorry. This might not be any better though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so she's in Chicago. And she ends up meeting her first husband there. And they end up getting married in 1880. Nope, that's too young. Uh, yeah, 1884. Uh, his name was Mads Sorensen. And he was from Sweden. Um, Mads, like Mads Mikkelsen, you know, that's oh, yeah. Not a very yeah. He's anyway. so good on, um, what is it, Hannibal. Right. That's what I saw him the most on anyway. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so they get married in 1884 and their house burns down, but it's okay because she they have insurance and they take the insurance money from the house burning down and they buy a candy store. There was also rumors that they couldn't really have children of their own. And so they had foster children because the neighbors saw that she had two younger kids, two babies, but she was never pregnant. Mm. So, you know, there's a little bit of rumor about that. But the two children who also had insurance policies taken out on them 
ended up both dying of something called colitis, or so they thought. It's an infection of the lower intestine, but also the symptoms that they were having could also be from poisoning. Mm. But of course, the coroner wasn't really looking for that. You know, they're infants. So the two children end up dying from colitis. The candy store does okay for a bit, and then it doesn't start doing too well. Mysteriously, it ends up burning down. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shocking. So they use the money from the insurance from the candy store burning down to buy a house. Uh, Bell had also taken out insurance policies on MADS. Now, the interesting thing is she took out two. So one was going to expire and then the other would kick in. But there was going to be like a day or two where both insurance policies overlapped. It was during that very brief window that Mads ends up dead. Hmm. How convenient on a day where both of those insurance policies are active. Her story was that he came home and he said, I have a headache. So she went and gave him quinine powder for the headache. Mm. He went to go lie down. And when she went to go check on him, he had died. That was her story. And they did the autopsy and it looked like he died of brain hemorrhaging. So nothing seemed too off there. I guess, if you weren't looking too hard. Uh, but the but people were starting to talk because, you know, these mysterious fires that kept happening, uh, all of the people in her household dying and her collecting on the insurance money. So she decides to take that insurance money and she buys herself a pig farm in Indiana. And she moves to La Porte, Indiana little pig farm and while she's out there she starts putting out ads into the paper looking for a husband she's like hey I've got this really great farm um I'm very well to do uh the farm is great I just need a man to to help me run it and I'm, I'm looking for a husband and we had Peter Gunnis who answered the call they got married on april 1st of 1902 and peter had a small daughter from a, a previous marriage and shortly after they got married peter left the house for a bit and when he had come back the baby had died of mysterious causes indeed then Peter also ends up dead about eight months later. Uh, her story with this one was that he was going to reach something on a high shelf and a meat grinder ended up falling and crushing his skull. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Um, they, the, the coroner and other folks weren't really believing her story because once again, she's collecting insurance money because she's really good on making sure she's getting insurance for all of these houses, businesses, children, and men. Uh, so she collects on Peter's death, but they don't have any evidence. There's nothing like, yeah, it does look like his head got crushed in, but you know, there's no evidence that she was the one that did it. Mm -hmm. right so then she's continuing to place marriage ads in chicago newspapers in <laughs> 1905 uh, for basically the same thing and so what she would do is she would get these men that would answer her ads and they don't know how many ended up answering they say it's between 14 and about 40 or so men that could have possibly answered these ads she would say she was wealthy, she had a farm, she was looking for somebody to help her take care of this farm and to marry, but also 
this transaction would mean that the man would have to bring some money with him when he would come out to Indiana. So these men would pack up all their stuff, make sure to have money, either, you know, cash or would write her a check, come out to the farm and then disappear and never be heard from again. And what was really, really weird was her story was they would go and they'd run off, but they would always leave their stuff behind. Mm. Like their trunks and yeah, and of course their money. Mm. Uh, one of the ads was answered by Henry Gerholt. Um, he went and he actually wrote his family basically saying where he was and that he really liked the place and um, you know, go ahead and send us some seed potatoes so that we can go ahead and plant them. But then his family never heard from him again. And she was like, oh yeah, yeah. He went off with the horse traders out in Chicago, but it, all of his stuff was left at her house. Mm-hmm. Another guy, John Moe, also answered one of her ads. This is in 1906. Um, they had been talking back and forth for a few months and she was saying, oh, I love you. I love you so much. Uh, we need to be together. Uh, but um, when, you, when you cash in all of your, your money and your property to bring it all back here, don't put it in a bank. I don't, I don't trust banks. You need to sew it into the lining of your clothing. And so that's what he did. So he got a whole bunch of cash and brought it out to Indiana and was never heard from again. But his stuff was left at her place. Uh, She had a a hired hand by the name of Ray Lamphere, who he claims was an on and off lover of hers. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that she would write all of these ads and was luring men out to the farm and then she would kill them and she would rob them. And Ray Lamfort was brought into the story because they were suspecting him of having burned down the farmhouse in the beginning of the story that I was talking about mm-hmm. because he had been fired from the farm. Uh, the people around the town knew he was really kind of upset about that. He had been telling people that, oh, we were lovers and everything. But Belle was going around town saying, oh, he's crazy. He lies. He makes up stories. He's just upset that I fired him because he's lazy and he's not very good at what he does. So she was already telling the town, don't listen to this guy. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And so, of course, they were, he was really one of the first ones the authorities thought of when the house burned down because they also found evidence that he had been in the house at the time of the arson. His first story was that Bell had lured a woman, poisoned her, and then cut her head off because she wanted him or she wanted that body to seem like it was her body because she was trying to fake her death. And then she wanted Ray to set the, uh, the farm on fire with her three children in it so that she could go ahead and escape. Um, she also had like an, an older foster daughter that had disappeared and she was telling people, oh yeah, she went to California uh, to finish her schooling and recently had actually written her out of one of the in- insurance policies for her. Like she had changed it so like if she happened to die her daughter would not get any any of that money. So she fakes her death supposedly, kills her three children. Her other daughter is allegedly in California and Ray is confessing all of this to the authorities and saying that he had helped her bury the bodies of all the other men that she had lured out. And he went and he showed her or showed the authorities where the bodies were. So they went and they found, and this is, this starts to get really gross. <laughs> um, they found what were uh, called like soft depressions 
uh, over by the pen for the hogs. And they started to dig in these depressions and they found sacks full of hands and feet and, and the head. So like she was cutting up the pieces of the body and removing things that, you know, might identify them. Ooh. Right. Um, and there were all over the place, My like God. all over the farm. They started just started digging around all the places that had kind of like a little depressed part in the, in the land. Uh, they were finding just body parts, Ugh. torsos and hands. And what was really gross was that the, after the body parts had been cut up, it was almost like the ends had been smashed as well. Like the ends of the bones uh. had all been smashed. Um, yeah. Oh, the, the, <laughs> uh, you want to talk about soup? Yeah. They, and it says that it was the, the flesh around the bone was loose and it quote unquote dripped like jelly. Oh God. <laughs> This yeah. is a horrible oh, wow. description. Right. <laughs> and they were all kind of again butchered in in the same in the same manner. So she would cut off the head, uh, remove the arms, uh, remove the the legs, and then cut off hands and the feet. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Yuck. Um, and then she would also put quick line on the faces. So again, trying to really destroy evidence of who these people were. Um, some were able to be identified, but many were not because there was no such thing as DNA testing. Right. And so they had been so butchered and uh, de decomposed that some of the families that came to the farm trying to find maybe their lost, you know, sons and loved ones, they couldn't tell if it was who they were looking for. Oh my God. How right? Awful. Yeah. So they're like, most of the remains could not be identified. So Lamfort was saying that she was uh, afraid because one of the, the men before he went missing was like, listen, my brother is going to come to this farm looking for me. And sure enough, the brother did come to the farm looking. And so because of that, Lamfort was said that that is why Bell wanted to stage her murder, kill everybody, burn everything down so that they would stop looking for her. Then Ray ends up changing his story, saying that he actually did kill Mrs. Gunnis and the children. He chopped them, he killed them with an ax. He poured kerosene on their bodies and everything. And then he set everything on fire. And that was the story that he eventually stuck with. Mm. So they pretty much pronounced Bell dead even though there was all of that evidence that it might not be her, they did have recently, or recently, I want to say like 15 years ago, did a DNA test, but they couldn't, they didn't have really anything else to sample it from, you know? It's not like we had Bell Guinness's DNA on file, so it was inconclusive. Some folks were saying that after she was pronounced dead, that there were sightings of her, in Chicago, uh, but nothing is really checked out about her actually being alive or her actually getting away mm -hmm. with these murders. But that's kind of the mystery because the MO is right. The body was poisoned. She would poison people. The body was decapitated. That was her MO. Uh, the place was set on fire. She had no qualms about killing children. Oh, uh, and speaking of killing children, one of the bodies that they found buried in the farm was that of her older daughter that she said had gone to California. Oh my God. So, yeah. So this definitely could have been something that she'd done and that maybe Ray was a sick mofo who was in love with her and willing to 
do whatever she said and cover up for her as well. Who knows? So that's kind of the mystery of Belle Gunnis, who was a very horrible person who did some okay. really gross, mean things to people. So, okay. yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Chicago. I know, right? I know. <laughs> and there's still murders going on. My God. Uh, we won't even get into that, but yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Bell Gunnis. Um, yeah. More, more, more to say. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Bags of hands and feet. Ugh. Right. Just oh right out there. You just lost me at the up. jelly. I just can't like. <laughs> oh God. Yuck. 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. But yeah, I mean, why wouldn't it be like that? That's science isn't it so yeah (laughs) everything's been decomposing yeah for months it sounds like a a bad uh a bad episode of csi (laughs) right think of but yeah oh it's terrible (laughs) this is the early 1900s so it's not like they have cooling systems yeah it's mm, oh my god gross yeah that's so gross (laughs) (laughs) yeah her property probably smelled really bad well it was a pig farm so yeah everything would probably be hidden under the smell of pigs that's true the pigs the pig smell would be pretty strong yeah i I don't know for sure but i would imagine yeah right me too and then lye or quick lime can help absorb the smell of Hmm. rotting corpses to a point, because I think, uh, was it a William or John I, Wayne Gacy was trying to cover up the smell with lime, but it was, was not indeed. working. He was yeah. indeed. And if you guys are at all interested, I mean, it's quite the case, but you should watch the new Netflix on John oh, Wayne Gacy. Oh, I did. That did you? Yeah, see? Yes. Uh, it was Chicago, right? Yes, and it was absolutely <laughs> insane. The details that I already knew about the case just it fl- <laughs> sorry to say this, but it fleshed everything out, you know what yeah, I mean? Like even more. But yeah. like it's it's no, it was very good. So if you're interested, definitely watch that documentary. It's yeah. worth it. I didn't know how how involved in the community he was. Like I knew about the clown yeah. and going to charities, but he was like one of like the democratic leaders yes. or some stuff, like super liberal, making friends yeah. and, and, and exactly right. killing and raping young boys and burying them under his freaking floorboards. Yeah. And I oh. mean, this might sound very simplistic, but I mean if he could have just accepted his sexuality and gotten on with his life, things might have been okay. But yeah, but I, there was also more to it that he was attracted to, I think, the boys that were not attracted to him. That's and true. I think that yeah. even compounded that that sexual frustration. That's true. Um, no, you're right because yeah. it was it was inappropriate because um, it was young boys. Yes exactly yeah. no you're right i take that back but yeah. i think that about Dahmer too but it's just so disturbing yeah. you know yeah. I mean, you can't even get your mind around it but yeah yeah if you're interested sick. anyone out there i know it is pretty, it's totally sick like but yeah oh, some anyway. some other good sick ones uh tying back to renee zellweger from Chicago, the movie. Oh, yeah, she's in my new show. She is, if you want to, she plays another alleged murderer. And that one is really messed up. It's so twisted, yeah. Wait, what's it called? For real story, it's called The Thing About Beth. Yeah. The Thing About, oh, no, Pam, isn't it? Pam, I'm sorry, The Thing About Pam. Thing About Pam. Yeah. 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 And she's so good in it. Does not look like herself at all. Nope. Mm-hmm. And like Roxana says, the story is like just completely ludicrous. So yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> but it's very mm-hmm. good, and all the actors in it are very good too. So yeah, definitely well done. To check it out. Yeah, <laughs> more murder, murder all the time. Murder. 
<laughs> we love murder. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> murder. On that right. note, this is an awesome episode. I'm gonna open my next Miller High Life. Um, yeah, and uh, we are that. recording another one in a minute here. Okay. But for those who are listening, follow us on the social medias, uh, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, listen to our other podcast, Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. If you want some more stuff, more Hollywood-oriented um which we'll be recording for in a moment here, another episode. Uh, you can email us if you have any suggestions for future episodes uh, at myweirdlittlepodcast at gmail.com or hollywoodshauntedthepodcast at gmail.com. Like, like, subscribe, share with your friends. Please share the podcast with your friends. Please let them know how cool we are because we are awesome and we're always talking about cool stuff. So yeah, do the thing. And uh, (laughs) real, (laughs) Uh, I got to come up with a better sign off. What's a good sign off? Um, I was saying stay spooky. Stay spooky. Okay, we'll go with that. (laughs) Stay spooky. All right.